More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Another day, another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. Hey, it's Kelly, and I want to thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today. I'm really excited for this episode. I'm excited every week. Let's just face it. I love hanging out with you and spending this time together each week. I look forward to it. And today's episode, though, I am excited to share with you. It's actually based on something that I've been dealing with over the past week. It happens a lot. I have these podcasts planned out and then life happens and sometimes I take a quick little detour. But before we get to that, I want to remind you to join the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group if you haven't done that already. It is a fantastic group. You can post your questions in there, your story in there. You can ask for encouragement. You can give encouragement. It's a private group. So search Survivor Sanctuary on Facebook and request to join, and I will add you to the group. And I want to welcome some of our newest members to the group, Michelle, Christy, Yvonne, Lily, Pamela, Robbie, Mary, CJ, and Maude. And uh, the list goes on and on. And actually, I have not been calling out our members. Uh, It is a private group, so first names, I think we're okay. But I definitely have just started it this week. So I can't go through the whole list of everyone that's joined, but those are our most recent members who have joined Survivor Sanctuary. And I'm always excited when I see those requests come in and we get them each and every week. And it's very encouraging to know that there are people who want to participate in this podcast when you're not listening and we can have really great discussions and you can get really awesome insight from people in the group. And I absolutely love that. I learn a lot from everybody in the Survivor Sanctuary group all the time. You guys are amazing. So make sure that you join if you haven't done that already. So sometimes things happen in the news and I just really want to talk about them on the podcast. Like I need to vent about some news stories and not necessarily spend an entire podcast. So today I wanted to do an in the news segment for you because there's a story that has been in the news this past week and I first heard about it from Julie Royce. She reported the story and maybe you heard about it as well. We're going to discuss it here for just a second because I need to get something off my chest. So a prominent pastor, John Ortberg, was recently disciplined by his church elder board for failing to protect minors from a volunteer who told him in confidence that he had a problem with sexual attraction to children. So a lot of times in churches, you'll hear about someone who is a child predator and they manage to go under the radar and unnoticed and people don't know anything about it until a story hits the news or a survivor comes forward and then they kind of deal with all the ramifications. But in this case, something a little bit different happened. This man who volunteered with children, he even went as far as to go on overnight trips in his volunteer role with children. He confessed to the pastor that he had an unwanted thought pattern of attraction 
to minors. Now, he assured the pastor that he hadn't acted on this attraction. Um, So the pastor, instead of saying, you know what, Um, thank you for telling me, and we're going to have to keep you really far away from children because that's what we have to do to protect them. Instead of that, he just referred him to counseling and then took no steps to keep the man from volunteering with minors at the church campus. He didn't tell anybody else, nobody on the elder board. He just kind of made the decision on his own. Oh, you're a pedophile. You've just admitted that you have an obsessive attraction to children, a sexual attraction to children. I think it would be a pretty great idea for you to go to counseling, but keep on volunteering with children. It's like someone confessing to you that they're an alcoholic and you don't suggest to them that they should probably stop working at a bar. Here's where the story gets even more interesting. The pastor's son came to him because this volunteer again told someone else, the son of this pastor, that he experienced obsessive sexual feelings about young children. And he also sought unsupervised volunteer positions with minors, again, saying that he did overnight travel with minors. So the pastor's son confronted him along with his wife and they said, listen, we've got a problem with this. We've got a lot of reservations about the fact that this guy has not been removed from a volunteer role that nobody else in the church has been told about this. And the pastor brushed them off and said, no, it's important to maintain secrecy and basically just dismissed them and their concerns. So they took it to the elder board themselves, which I think was the absolute right thing to do. And the very next day, Pastor Ortberg went on personal leave from his pastoral duties. Now, he did end up standing before the congregation in January last month, and he you know, confessed, he apologized basically for what he had done and for not worrying more about the welfare of the children in the church. And he said something really interesting to me in his apology. I didn't actually listen to the whole thing because it was long and drawn out, and he started talking about random stuff that I just... I wasn't following. But one thing that he did say was something about the fact that, you know, parents are so concerned that something could happen to their children and that he let them down by basically not telling anyone in the church, not giving them a heads up, not giving them a chance to protect their children. And this is not to say that this man just sat in the congregation with, you know, parents and children. That would be bad enough. But he was actually volunteering with minors. It is crazy to me to think about it. Honestly, I will never understand why it is that the welfare of children is always looked on or viewed with such contempt by so many people in ministry and in in leadership in ministry. And I say contempt because I can't think of any other word to describe it. What kind of contempt do you have for the innocence of children to say, yeah, this dude just told me he has obsessive sexual thoughts about children and he goes on overnight trips with the youth group. Um, But, you know, I'm just going to leave him there, not going to tell anybody, not going to give anybody a heads up, and we'll just hope for the best. Like to me, contempt is the only word that I can think of because in what other area are you going to respond this way to a person who confesses something like that to you? I think of it this way. If this man had come to the pastor and he was volunteering as, oh, I don't know, the church accountant, or he was taking up the offering and maybe counting the money uh, after the service, and he tells the pastor, listen, I have a serious problem with theft. 
I just obsess over stealing money. I obsess over taking money that doesn't belong to me. Now, I haven't acted on it, and I haven't taken any money from the church, but I have these obsessive thoughts about doing it. Do you think for a second that any pastor, any ministry leader, including John Ortberg, would say to this guy, you know what? Here's the number for a counselor. You keep right on volunteering as our church money counter, despite your obsessive thoughts about stealing money from the church. Literally no one is going to do that. No pastor would sit and watch that happen. And it makes me so sad. Like, I don't even have the ability to be like angry about this because it just makes me feel so sick to my stomach. The utter contempt that people have for the innocence of children, for their vulnerability, like they cannot protect themselves. Not only are you not keeping him from volunteering in ministry, you're also not even warning parents, hey, we've got somebody who has volunteered with kids and he's admitted to having obsessive sexual thoughts about children. So we just want you to be aware of this and make sure that your child is never alone with this volunteer. We're not going to let him volunteer with kids anymore. Like something, give people something to work with. That's like, I'm sick to my stomach because I know that I know that I know that I know that nobody would do this if what was at stake was money, if what was at stake was church property, if what was at stake was something that could put a financial strain on the church. Like, it would not happen. So why does it happen when the innocence of children is at stake? I don't have answers for it because honestly, I'm dumbfounded. And I think that this church did a really great job. They immediately removed him. And so for that, I say props to the church, because even if it was just a PR move, they did the right thing in removing him from leadership. And I guess he's on some sort of a pathway back into leadership or whatever. He's working on it with the elder board, but they actually considered it enough of an an issue, what he did, what he chose to do to actually remove him from his position. So props to the church, but I'm just like, I'm floored. I don't know how to be shocked and surprised by these things anymore. And I cannot imagine the mindset of a person that would allow that to happen. I I think of myself as a kid and I think of the man who abused me and that he volunteered with children. I mean, he wasn't a paid staff member. He just volunteered. He would color pictures along with the kiddos and that was how he groomed us. So regardless of what this man said about, oh, I've never acted on these desires. If you are putting yourself in a position where you're constantly going to be tempted by children, where you're constantly going to be looking at them, where your brain can sexualize them, then you are not doing what it takes to keep from acting on those desires. Like somebody who's trying to lose weight does not go hang out in a donut shop all day. And somebody who has a sexual obsession with children and doesn't want to act on it doesn't go volunteer in children's ministry. Just kind of crazy to me. I had to talk about that because I didn't want to dedicate a whole podcast episode to that news story, but it was something that, you know, sometimes I don't get to vent about these things to you guys. Sometimes I'll post things in the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group, but this was one story that just had me floored and just sick to my stomach. Like, I just don't get it. I don't get the mindset of a person that would hear someone confess something like that and not take the steps. And I guess what makes me more sick, and I did mention it, but the thing that makes it even more stomach turning to me is the knowledge 
that if it had had anything to do with almost anything else in the church, but especially anything related to money, his reaction would not have been the same. He would have made sure that he kept that guy really far from the church till, you know, but he didn't have the same thought when it came to protecting vulnerable little children. It's just, ugh, it's insane to me. So that's the story. And if you want to check out the story, if you didn't get a chance to see it, you can visit julieroys.com. That's julieroys.com. And I will link to the story in the show notes so that you can check it out and read it and uh, read all of the details Honestly, I could do like an episode of Survivor Sanctuary every single hour of every single day if all I was going to do was talk about news stories because pretty much every single day there's this kind of craziness and nonsense in the news. And now we are going to move on to the meat of today's episode. And this episode was actually something that I decided to do after I listened to Jimmy and Clara Hinton's podcast last Thursday. I listen every single week. I am a subscriber to their podcast. And sometimes they'll talk about things that get me to start thinking. And sometimes it'll bring things up from my past or just bring up things that I know I need to talk about on an episode of Survivor Sanctuary. And this past week with their episode with Laura Dunn, who's a nationally recognized expert on Title IX and sexual assault, uh, I knew that this was one of those episodes that was going to trigger things in me that I needed to talk about. And actually, when I started listening I wasn't really expecting, I mean, I was expecting to enjoy the podcast and learn things, but I wasn't really expecting to have the reaction to the podcast emotionally that I had. And it was kind of interesting, all of the things that this episode brought up in me. So you know that with my story, if you've been listening to the podcast for any time at all, I was abused as a six-year-old little girl. And so, you know, campus sexual assault and Title IX and, and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't really seem to apply to my story. And so, I mean, I was listening with great interest because my goodness, Laura Dunn is amazing. And she, everything she said was brilliant and perfectly stated, and she's a really great speaker. So I was just enraptured the entire time. But it brought back so many memories of being in college and some things that had happened to me in college that I had not thought about in years. There are things that if I would sit and really think about my college career uh, that would come up for me sometimes, but for the most part, I'd forgotten about them. Now, I wasn't sexually assaulted on a college campus, but I was sexually harassed and it was confided to me several times girls who were being sexually harassed or girls who were being sexually assaulted. And because I went to college years ago, you know, before Me Too, before Church Too, before it was a prominent thing that people talked about, um, honestly, there really wasn't any focus at all at my Christian college on sexual assault or what to do if anything happened. So I think that the easiest way for me to talk about this is just to tell the story of what happened to me as, oh gosh, I was probably 19 years old. I went to Southeastern University. It was Southeastern College at the time in Lakeland, Florida. And I have to say, and I apologize to Southeastern, four of the worst years of my entire life. And people used to say, these are the best years of your life. And I would just, my heart would sink and it was, I would feel like I was drowning. And I would just say, like, if these are the best years of my life, I 
don't want to live anymore. <laughs> like it was that bad. And looking back now, I know that one of the reasons that it was such a struggle for me in college is because I was first starting to deal with my anxiety disorder. I was first starting to deal with anxiety attacks and with some very just deep emotional stuff that I did not understand at all. So I had managed somehow after you know my childhood, probably around the time that I was like 15 and I started to be able to push down those feelings of shame related to sexual abuse, you know, it wasn't something that was on my mind and I don't remember really experiencing any anxiety. And I know now that the reason I didn't experience any anxiety is because nothing was there to trigger that anxiety in me. When I went to college, that changed because I began to date. So my first semester of college, I met a guy and we started, I guess I should say dating, but I don't know. We saw each other every day because we were on a college campus, but I don't actually remember us ever going out on a date except maybe walking to a Wendy's. That's how we did it at Southeastern University. And in any case, I was very much struggling with horrifying anxiety. And when I say horrifying anxiety, like if I had to pick out the darkest days of my entire life, I would probably tell you my first year of college and into my second year of college. And actually my entire college experience, I started struggling with anxiety and I didn't understand it. I just remember I I was sick, like so sick to my stomach to the point where I would wonder if I was physically sick, but something in me knew that it was an emotional reaction I was having. The problem here for me was I didn't even know what anxiety was. I don't think I had ever even heard the word anxiety as it related to like a mental health issue. I had only heard about worry. I knew what worry was. I didn't consider myself a person who worried overly much. I honestly didn't, but I was struggling with debilitating anxiety and I had no idea what anxiety even was. And it's sad that I was probably 30 years old before I finally realized that I struggled with anxiety and somebody else had to tell me. And I just remember it was this eye-opening thing like, this is the horror that I've been dealing with all these years and I haven't been able to put a name to it. So I lay that groundwork just because I want to give you an idea of where I was in my college experience. When I was asked out by my first boyfriend at Southeastern College at the time, I had about 15 minutes of peace and then the anxiety attacks began. And I mean anxiety full on attacks. I don't call them panic attacks because I think with panic attacks, you actually feel like you're dying. You know, a lot of people end up going to the emergency room. You feel like you're having a heart attack. For me with anxiety, I knew that it was emotional. I knew that there was an element of something that was going on with me emotionally, but to say that it was complete and utter torture is putting it mildly. I'm not exaggerating. Darkest days of my life, And most of the darkest days of my life have to do with me trying to be in some sort of romantic relationship with someone of the opposite sex. It's sad. It's one of the reasons that sexual abuse makes me so angry is because you got to deal with these levels of torture that you are fully aware you would not have been dealing with had you never been abused. But that's a side note. And that's an episode for another time. So back to Kelly in college, I broke up with this boy as I would come to do with 
every single boy that I dated in my whole life, I ended up breaking up because the anxiety was too much. And I just remember saying, I don't want to break up with you. I don't want to not be with you, but staying with him made me feel like I was going to throw up 24 hours a day and made me feel like I was going to die. So I didn't have any other choice. So I was super confused. You can imagine my first love and I'm thinking I'm in love. And this is a person that I, you know, we were young and naive and we thought that at like 19 and 21, we could make this decision about getting married. And so that was where I was at. And all of a sudden it was like my brain and my body were rebelling against that. And they were like, no, not so fast. It was such a confusing and horrific time. So I ended up breaking up with this guy, mainly to just get the anxiety to cease. That was the only thing that I knew to do. That was the only thing that I knew to make it stop was just to get away from him, even though that was the last thing on earth I wanted to do. So I did that. And then I was alone dealing with this confusion and this anxiety and this fear. And I often say that my anxiety makes me the weakest version of myself. And it's a version of myself that I just like, I look at with contempt because I cannot stand that weakness. It's, it's like, I don't want to be the weakest version of myself and the most helpless version of myself. I'm, I'm a strong person and I can handle myself and I can take care of myself. And, you know, I don't need anybody's help with anything. And when it comes to anxiety, I absolutely am just catapulted back, like basically to the fetal position when I was an infant and unable to do anything for myself. So I was dealing with this in college. And I say that because I'm going to tell you some stuff about um, some college professors and some other students and things that were said to me and about me by people who didn't understand what I was going through at the time. So we all have a great picture in our head. Kelly, after a breakup, emotionally devastated and dealing with debilitating anxiety, except she had no idea what debilitating anxiety even was. So I had had anxiety about the fact that I was having anxiety. It was just anxiety on top of anxiety because I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to identify it. I didn't know what to think to think of it. I didn't know what it was or what to do, or even that I needed to, or could do anything about it. So confusing, just a super, super confusing and dark time in my life. Well, I was at a car wash one day and someone touched my neck and I think that they just like squeezed a wet sponge, like in a joking way. We were washing cars. It was for a ministry on campus that we were raising money for. And I think somebody was just being silly with the water and I kind of freaked out because that's one of my biggest triggers. It has been my entire life. And it's interesting that people in my family know this about me, and they knew this about me for years without ever having any knowledge of the fact that I had been sexually abused. I hated my entire life to have my neck touched. It was something that made my skin crawl. It was something that took me back immediately to being on the lap of my sexual abuser, and I just hated it. So when this person, I don't remember who it was that did it or, you know, what exactly was said, except that I kind of expressed to them when they saw that I freaked out a little bit, like I was just, it gave me the creeps. And I said, Oh, I just, I, I hate having my neck touched. I hate it. And that was stated out loud for every person there to hear. That was it. You know, I went about my day and I was fine. And then maybe a day later or two days later, one of the guys who was in ministry on campus and who was a student as well, but he was a little bit older than the rest of the students. 
walked up behind me when I was standing in line to get a sandwich in the cafeteria. Pretty sure I was getting a tuna sandwich with provolone and standing in line for that. And he walked up behind me, bent down and kissed me on my neck, like right on the side of my neck where I had grabbed it uh, when the person squeezed the sponge of water on me, the exact same spot that triggers me immediately. He didn't touch my neck. He literally walked up behind me, did not announce himself, and kissed me on the neck. This might not sound like the worst thing in the world to you, especially if it's not a trigger for you, but let me put it this way. Sometimes if I see something that reminds me of being touched on my neck, I will literally grab at my neck, and I'm better at it now since I've dealt with the sexual abuse that happened to me as a kid. It's, it's better now. But it gives me the creeps to the point that I will have to grab my neck and scratch it with my nails, like claw myself essentially to make the creepy feeling go away. It's like I'm trying to claw that disgusting feeling off of my neck. And that's when people just accidentally get their hands near my neck or somebody just like touches me accidentally when they're hugging me or whatever. Like it's that bad when someone touches my neck, just like with their hands, or if I see somebody touching somebody else's neck, which is very, you know, Jimmy also had an episode on triggers and I kind of wanted to chime in a little bit uh, because that has always been a trigger for me. And I remember standing in line at a gas station and a guy reached down and kissed his girlfriend on the neck. And I became so enraged that I literally wanted to like punch him in the face. Like I, I didn't do anything, but that is the kind of way that it triggers me. Like I can be totally fine and I will claw at my neck and become physically like angry. And there are just certain touches and certain sounds that if I hear them, they take me to a not good place. So dude walks up behind me, kisses me on the neck. And I just remember freezing. I froze because I didn't know what else to do. And then, you know, he came over to the front and just didn't really say anything but hi. And I was just frozen. I I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I'm a freezer when I am in a situation of trauma or stress or a trigger. I freeze. That's what I tend to do. So I don't really know what happened. I think I just took my tray and went back to the table. And I may have like said something to somebody who was sitting with me. But I was so sick. I was so sick to my stomach over what he had done. And one of the reasons was because I knew that he had heard me say at that car wash that I hated to have my neck touched. So to me, that was not an accident. Like somebody that you're not close friends with, that you have never invited to touch you in any way, hears that you hate to have your neck touched, and the very next time he sees you, decides to walk up behind you and kiss you on the neck. That is crazy stuff. So the longer I sat there, the more I knew that whatever he had done had been done with intention. And I was so disgusted. And I just thought, I have to tell somebody about this because this is not right. I have to tell somebody about this. 
So I left the cafeteria. I walked across this grassy field to the office of one of the professors that I was hanging out with some that semester. And it was a professor that I believed that I could trust, but who I found out later had been talking about me behind my back. And I think a lot of the reason was because I was dealing with an anxiety disorder I didn't understand. And so emotionally, I wasn't at the top of my game. And I don't know if I came across as weak emotionally. I'm not sure. And I'm not going to apologize for it because I believe that I was treated poorly and that college professors probably shouldn't sit, especially at a Christian college, shouldn't sit and gossip about students with other students. In any case, I went to her office because she would some, was someone that I was talking to a lot and that I was actually hanging out with some outside of campus. And I told her like what had happened and I was really, really upset. And I don't remember what was said and I just went about my life. Well, a few weeks after that, a girl came to me who was in ministry with this guy. And she was a girl that I considered like a super, super strong person. Like she had a very strong personality. She was like, I'm pretty sure she was from like the mean streets of New York. Like she could handle herself. But she said, Kelly, I don't know what to do because this guy is grabbing me and touching me inappropriately. Like the things that she told me that he was doing enraged me. And so once again, I had this like anger well up inside me, like he has to be stopped. And looking back now, because she was of age, I probably should have let her handle it, but she told me she was too afraid to tell anyone. So I told the professor, again, not something I would do now. If somebody is of age, I'll let them make the decision of whether or not to tell. But I felt like this guy needs to be stopped. He's in ministry on campus and he's walking around touching girls sexually and harassing them essentially and getting away with it because everybody's too scared to tell. So I marched to this professor's office, not knowing what else to do, and I told her what had happened um, to me and to this other girl and that this guy was basically bad news. Her response to me was okay, I think, in that I know that she was angry about the abuse. I know that she was angry about what he had done, and she had said before that she herself was a victim of sexual violence and sexual abuse. So I assumed if anybody would be able to kind of understand, it would be her. But she said something to me that I will never forget. And that is, you know, and I'm going to use fake names for people because I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. But she said, you know, Devin's right. He said, Kelly loves drama. And that was the response that I got for trying to come forward about someone who was sexually harassing, I mean, at best you could call it sexual harassment. He was sexually harassing people on campus. The response of this professor was to tell me basically that she'd been gossiping about me with another student who said that I love drama. And the only thing I could think that made them think that I love drama was the fact that I was in a really bad place emotionally and I think that it showed on my face. I think that my confusion about life and just not knowing which way was up and trying to deal with an anxiety disorder, I guess it showed because apparently that's what this student thought of me. Like Kelly loves drama. And I thought, okay, um, I'm shamed. Like I've just been shamed for coming forward about being sexually harassed by someone who's in ministry on campus. I'm pretty sure that I went to my RA or maybe to the 
professor that was the leader of the women of the college. I don't know exactly what her title was, but I went to her and I told her what was happening because I thought that somebody needed to do something like this guy was in ministry. So the school's way of dealing with it, I mean, I don't know if it was right or wrong, if they did the right thing. I don't know. I didn't know anything about sexual assault at the time or sexual harassment or Title IX or anything. I didn't know anything. So they removed him from ministry. He didn't get kicked out of school. He just was removed from his student ministry position. And that was it. That was all the school was concerned with. They called me and said, hey, we removed him. We just want you to know that that's what we did. So this guy was removed from ministry. And I remember one day my ex-boyfriend decided to talk to me about what had happened. Uh, I don't remember if I told him what happened or if he heard it from somebody else. I'm really not sure. All I know is that he wanted to speak with me about it. And at first I felt like, oh my gosh, what a caring guy, because he told me that he confronted the guy who had inappropriately kissed me on the neck in the school cafeteria. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, he's defending me and he has my back. How nice. But he looked at me and he said, I really don't think that you should have gone to leadership about this. And my heart just sank. And I felt once again, (laughs) Kelly loves drama. And that's why she's telling people that girls are being sexually harassed. And then add to that, that I did the wrong thing spiritually by going to leadership instead of going to this guy who had sexually harassed me. And that was essentially what he said. You know, the Bible says that if you have an issue with somebody, you're supposed to go to them privately. And so, you know, I think that you should have gone and talked to him and you shouldn't have gone to school leadership. So, you know, my knight in shining armor that I thought like, oh, this guy defended me and he went and he confronted this guy. No, he, he went to talk to the guy. Maybe he did confront him, but essentially his takeaway from whatever meeting they had was that I should not have gone straight to campus authorities, that I should have gone and talked to him. I was so shamed, you guys. Shame is obviously already something that I struggle with a lot related to my childhood sexual abuse, and so it was probably easy for me to feel shame in this situation, but all I knew was that coming forward was a bad thing because coming forward meant that I loved drama, or coming forward meant I was violating Matthew chapter 18 that tells you to go to an individual who has wronged you rather than you know going over their head. I mean, forget the fact Matthew 18 is quoted wildly out of context. Like if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't, take one or two others along with you. Where I don't think this applies is where they try to make it apply to little children who have been sexually abused and also to women and men who have been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed by a person that is now a danger to them. I was triggered beyond belief when this guy touched me the way that he did. And knowing that he did it purposely, because I'm sorry, there's literally no other explanation on earth for that except that he heard me say it and he wanted to explore why I didn't like to have my neck touched. And so he thought it would be a good idea to come up behind me and kiss me on the neck. Well, after I heard a description of what he was doing to this other girl that was a student on campus... Looking back now, I know he was a sexual predator. I think that my instinct was right to fear him. And there was no way on earth that I needed to go and take this to him and talk to him about it. 
But when my ex-boyfriend, lovely guy that he was, decided to tell me that I should not have gone over this dude's head, that I should have gone to him with my concerns, and that it wasn't right for me to do that, I was so shamed that the next time I saw this guy, we actually worked together in, in a segment of the university. Not like close together, but we worked in the same department of the university, and so I would see him sometimes. And he was driving by me on a golf cart one day, and he kind of slowed down to stop, and he was like, hey, you know, and he, he basically tried to act like he was just so broken over what had happened to him. And I was so shamed by what the various people on campus had said to me about coming forward that I actually apologized to him. And I spiritualized it. I said, you know what? I didn't think about it. But, you know, the Bible says that if your brother sins against you, you need to go to him alone and talk to him. And I didn't do that. And I'm so sorry. And I basically like apologized to this guy for reporting him for sexually harassing me and sexually assaulting another girl. And that's the kind of screwed up message that we give to people, especially on our Christian campuses and Christian universities. I mean, you hear the stories of women being told that they have to confess for their part in the assault and what they did. And there is just it's it's rape culture at its finest. And I didn't realize how affected I was by that experience that I had at Southeastern until I heard Jimmy's episode with Laura Dunn, until I heard her talking about, you know, her own story and the stories of some other people and Title IX. And I was just taken back. I mean, they weren't even really talking about um, college. They were talking about K through 12 and how Title IX applies there. But so much stuff came up for me. And it was stuff that I haven't dealt with in a long time. And I just kind of relived those feelings of shame. The feeling that I am somehow the problem. Not the person who decided to sexually harass me. Not the person who decided to put his mouth on me uninvited. Not the person who was sexually harassing somebody else on campus and sexually assaulting a girl on campus. You know, none of that was the problem. He was not the problem. The problem was me because I loved drama, therefore I reported him. And I didn't know my Bible well enough, apparently, and hadn't read Matthew 18 enough to know that I should not have reported him. And now I think that that's complete and utter bullcrap. Never, ever, ever would I put up with now someone telling me that it's dramatic to report sexual abuse of any kind. But at the time... I was 19 years old. I was struggling so much emotionally. And it's hard for me to say, like, it's hard for me to say because on the surface, like if people, some people who saw me at college, they may have thought, oh, Kelly was just happy and everything was fine. And, you know, she was the loud laugher and she always had a smile on her face. And, you know, that was probably a lot of people's experience with me in college. But there were other people who were just not nice about the struggle that I was going through. I remember somebody saying, like, you never smile anymore. You know, why do you even bother? Or somebody saying that, like, I didn't wear enough makeup or something like, you know, you're just sad and you don't dress up enough or basically telling me that I needed to make myself look nicer. And I'm like, I am in the worst dark pit of my entire life. And if I want to wear jeans and a T-shirt instead of a skirt, that's what I'm going to do. It's interesting, the anxiety that this still brings up in me. Um, just kind of thinking back on it. And this was a lot of stuff that I hadn't really dealt with. Most of what I've been dealing with as far as healing and as far as the things that I would discuss in therapy, most of that had to do with, you know, my early childhood and being sexually abused 
as a child. And for whatever reason, that college chapter, all of that pain, all of that anxiety, all of that darkness, and the sexual harassment I dealt with and the shaming by other people, for some reason, it had just been shoved into the dark recesses of my mind. And I don't think I've actually come to any conclusion today except to say it is complete and utter garbage for somebody to shame you for coming forward about having been abused by someone, whether it's sexually, physically, emotionally. Like if you are coming forward about abuse, trying to stop someone who's hurting people, there is no excuse for anyone to shame you for that. And my takeaway from my university experience with sexual harassment, my takeaway from all that was good Christian girls don't blow the whistle. Good Christian girls act happy and nice and completely mentally healthy at all times. Good Christian girls don't make trouble. They don't make waves. They don't cause problems for anybody including sexually abusive people, which is a very toxic, very toxic environment. And one of the interesting things to me is that we talk a lot about how leadership mishandles allegations of abuse. And I honestly don't really know how the university handled it except to remove him from ministry. And at the time, I thought that that was enough. Looking back, um, maybe they should have done more. But my bad experience in this area didn't come from leadership. It came from other students. It came from an ex-boyfriend. And it came from a professor who probably crossed the line with how close she was with her students. So that's just the stuff that came up for me this week. And honestly, I'm still dealing with it. You know, it's the anxiety that it sort of brought back up in me. It's surprising. You know, I didn't realize that I had kind of been pressing a lot of this down and trying not to think about it. Um, So a lot of it, you know, it came up and obviously I'm dealing with it okay. And I will still say if I could take four years of my life and not remember them, it would probably be the four years that I spent at Southeastern University. And that, oh goodness, that is a really great commercial for the university. Maybe they'll want to sponsor my podcast. It's probably going to happen. Okay, no, no, uh, no hard feelings against the university. It wasn't their fault that all of my anxiety was, you know, stored up from the age of six and then all came tumbling out at the age of 18 when I happened to be at Southeastern. Not their fault. Still not a great experience. Well, we can continue this conversation in the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. You can ask to join. I will put a link in the show notes and we'll get you in on the group. And I'd love to hear any experience maybe that you had with how your university handled an allegation of sexual abuse, if you've had any dealings with Title IX. And it would be great to have Laura Dunn on the podcast at some point so she can talk a little bit more about Title IX and dealing with sexual assault on campus. This episode was more of a little vent sesh, but I would love to hear your thoughts and you can post those thoughts in the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for letting me vent. And I will catch you back here next time. See you then. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. 
Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.